This is a Hot Pie Media original. What do I value? Um, what does it take to do the job? How do you stay engaged and curious? And then do you have the, the situation around you? Whether is it like, you know, is it your family supportive of it? How do they handle it? You know, the people around you, do they value what you do? Are they support you and how you do it? I think those are the things that are like most critical for that. Hi, I'm Eric Corum, and this is The Blueprint. I've spent my life helping Olympic gold medalists, NFL, and NCAA athletes be the best at their craft. Now I'm taking that experience and translating it into your life. This podcast is for busy professionals and household CEOs who care deeply about their family, career, and their health. There's an ocean of content to wade through, but I do the heavy lifting for you and distill cutting-edge science, leadership, and life skills into simple tactics optimized for your lifestyle and goals. Bruce Feldman is the National College Football Insider for The Athletic, one of the sport's leading voices. He is also a sideline reporter for Fox College Football. Bruce has covered college football nationally for more than 20 years and is the author of numerous books on the topic, including Swing Your Sword, Leading the Charge in Football and Life with Mike Leach, and most recently, The QB, The Making of Modern Quarterbacks. In this episode, we discuss how to build trust, ego, the power of confidence, and the downfall of great coaches. But before we get to my interview with Bruce, I want to let you in on an exclusive and free opportunity. Tell me if you know this story. You go out and spend hundreds of dollars on a fancy wearable device, hoping that it would help you achieve your wellness goals. And then it ends up in the sock drawer. Sound familiar? Or how about this? You follow those cookie cutter clickbait health recommendations like walking 10,000 steps a day and all you get is anxious and demotivated when life gets in the way and you can't hit the magic number. It's time for an evolution of expectation and results. And that's where AIM-7 comes in. AIM-7 sets busy people free to live their values every day by building lifelong healthy habits. We use the health data from your Apple Watch to create small, scientific, personalized recommendations for whatever you want to do. Sleep better, increase your energy, reduce your stress, or lose weight. If you're ready to finally unlock the power of your Apple Watch data, then go to www.aim7.com. That's AIM7.com to get early and free access to our exclusive program. AIM7 starts small and starts with you, your health data, your values to get to your thriving life. But now it's time to lean in and learn from the best. Well, Bruce, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Um, it's always, it's, I, I always learn something when I, when I talk to you. So you've been a great uh, resource, especially as college sports, especially kind of walked into the technology age or took a big leap. And um, I know you were on the cutting edge of that. So I'm excited to, to chat. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm excited to learn from you today. I, I think this conversation is going to be maybe a little different direction than you thought, but you and I first met in Lexington, Kentucky, at a restaurant because Eddie Grand connected us and he was like, Hey, you got to meet my friend, Bruce Feldman. And you and I met and it was not long. I think it was we like 30 or 45 minutes. We hung out cause you were driving somewhere. Maybe you're going yeah. to Columbus. I think I was doing a, you know, there was a, there was a university of Tennessee part of it. There was a, maybe a Western Kentucky visit Brom part of it. There was definitely an Ohio state component of it. But what I remembered was, um, before the Eddie G part of that was James Coley became the offensive coordinator at the University of Miami. Mm-hmm. I met him for lunch and I don't remember somewhere in South Florida. Hmm. And he started telling me about how FSU had cut soft tissue injury injuries under Jimbo Fisher. And there was a guy <laughs> who I didn't know. And so it kind of blew my mind. And I remember, you know, James had told me a bunch of interesting stuff at that lunch, but that was one of the things. And then uh, at some point I was in Lexington because Mark Stoops had had brought that guy from Tallahassee there. And so that was a tipping point for a lot of interesting stuff on that front. That's, that's interesting backstory. I did not know that. Now he's at A&M, uh, my, my alma mater, which is oh. pretty cool. So Jimbo's at my alma mater. It's, it's kind of a, like, 
it's there's a lot of full circle stuff. My buddy Justin Moore is now like the senior AD there. He played baseball when I was a football player. He was Kevin Sumlin's right hand man. Yeah, at A and M, and it's kind of a small world. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, but you and I met first time there, and something that really struck a chord with me is I instantly trusted you, and um. For somebody that works in your line of business and as a coach, you know, there's always kind of this like, how much should I say? Right. Mm -hmm. And I instantly trusted you. And I think that you have an uncanny ability to build trust. How do you do that? That is a good question. I don't know that I think about it. Here's, here's my approach to this. Like a lot of, of, People in all lines of work, whether they're in sports or not, I feel like it's relationship based, right? And so uh, if I have kind of a code of conduct, it would be started with this is like nothing is worth, you know, burning the the trust or, um, you know, the kind of thing where it's like, I would know if I did something that I felt like was um, not cool. <laughs> and how to, I also describe, you know, some people could say you, you have to look in the mirror, you know, that kind of thing. I just like, there's certain things I'm like, you know, I'll, I'll jump ahead five steps and then I'll come back to it. Like one of the things is when you develop a relationship with somebody, whether it's a coach or, you know, whoever it is, um, you talk to them a lot, whether you talk to them over text, whether you talk to them over lunch, whether you talk to them over beers, and sometimes you find out things that are quote have news value or they have, or you can write a story about them or whatever. And one of the things is when somebody really trusts you, um, especially if you really have a long relationship with them, they tell you stuff and you're just talking. And there are times where I will get off the phone and be like, well, I should go back to them and say, Hey, do you mind if I like, not going to quote you, maybe I'm not going to quote you, but you know, um, report that because what I don't want to do is talk to somebody who, you know, feel like I, they trust me and I have a good relationship with them. And I report something they're like, Whoa, I didn't expect you to report that because then did I intentionally burn them? No, but I always feel like, let me not be in the gray area in my head where is it okay if I report that or not? Because sometimes people will tell you something, especially if it's a coach and especially if it's a, you know, for the lack of a better term, front facing coach where it's a head coach or somebody who deals with the media a lot, like in the role you were at at UK and I'm definitely at, at um, Florida state, I'm guessing you didn't deal with the media. You weren't in front of a podium, you weren't mm -hmm. in front of, you know, a screen. So, um, but there are a lot of coaches who you talk to that they end up, you know, they're in front of a, a a scrum of people. And sometimes they may tell that the group something that they told me the day before. And so, you know, th there's times where like, you know, that could be of news value. It's like, can I get out in front of that? And you, all I want to do, you know, if somebody says, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not comfortable with that. Then that's fine. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that goes with it. I would, I've always approached things as I would rather know what's going on and maybe not be able to report it than be in the dark and speak about something where I may be commenting on it, but I don't know the full picture mm -hmm. because then it's like, you're just more informed. You're more, you can speak from, from with more authority, even if you do not put that stuff out there specifically. So when it comes to that trust, like I've always approached it as like, I want to have those relationships because I want to be able to, people are great resources. I mean, Eric, I know there's been a ton of times where you have been a Google for me, where it's like <laughs> you have a lot of intel on how things work, um, where it, it may not be like real news value. And sometimes people think of news value as like gotcha stuff. It just may be like, hey, does how, does this make sense to you know explain? Yeah, this to me? I've gotten. I can remember a couple of those. You're like, hey, what I is know. this all about? <laughs> you know, like it's. I feel very fortunate. I have a lot of people with with an incredible amount of expertise. You know, just as a way bigger side on this. So now I have twins, and they're just turned seven, and my son is obsessed with sports. And there are people who are great resources on things where it's like. 
what do you think of this? And it's like, it's not for stuff that I am necessarily going to report anything on, but it's like, you know, these, these people such as yourself have, have an incredible amount of expertise. And it's like, if I bounce something off of them, um, not to say, Hey, would you train my son or anything like that? But like, what do you think of this? Or do you think this is a good idea? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, those things are, you know, it's just invaluable. Um, so how do I build trust is just like, I try to be as straight and as open with people as I can. Um, you know, I don't think about like, it happens in different ways. Right. So a long time ago, like, I would feel like I was one of the first college football reporters who would hang out and go to the coaches convention every year, the AFCA. Mm -hmm. I was doing it for over 20 years. And what I would do was I would go and I would go drink beers with people or I might go out to lunch with them or whatever. I would just hang around. And the thing I didn't do was did not bring a notepad because I did not, if people see you jotting stuff down, especially people, you know, in your line of work where they are, I don't want to say that there's an us versus them component of it, but you know, look, you worked for Jimbo. It wasn't like Jimbo was, was Mr. Media friendly. You know, he mm-hmm. comes from the Nick Saban tree of the Belichick tree where it's like, you know, they're very protective of the information. I get why they are. So, you know, I have some other people who I respect as sports writers, but I know that like when we go to stuff, you know, whether it's like a, a Pac-12, Big 12, Big 10 meetings in Arizona in May, like I know some of the other reporters now go to those things and some of them are always armed with their notepad. And I do not judge them for that and think that's wrong because they have a job to do, just like I have a job to do. But I feel like, you know, that if somebody sees me scribbling things down all the time, the way they're, I think they're going to receive it is, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm being interviewed right now, whether they are or not. And they're going to be more cautious and more. So like, I try to be very, very um, mindful of that. And you know, sometimes it, the, the best thing that helps Eric, I think is one year I was at the coaches convention was in San Antonio and I was going to dinner with a guy who worked for, worked with an agency at the time uh, representing some coaches, younger guy, former college athlete, um, who is now works for a NBA team. He's out of the business of that. And he said, Hey, I'm bringing so-and-so to dinner. We were just catching up. Like we were friends cause we had a mutual, uh, buddy and he was bringing a coach at the time who was Pat Narduzzi, who was, you know, one of the top defensive coordinators in the country at the time. And I didn't really, I knew who Pat was. I didn't have any relationship with him. I didn't know him one way or the other. Um, but I definitely knew who he was. And I brought a buddy of mine who was a younger college coach who was now really ascended in the business, but it was a good friend of mine. It was somebody who as actually was came to my wedding and just, you know, mm. somebody who at the time was really just starting out. And at one point we went to Tex-Mex somewhere on the Riverwalk. I must've gone to the bathroom after an hour or whatever, came back and like, I could tell Pat was way more relaxed around me or whatever. And at some point when I went to the bathroom, I think the, the coach I knew must have said, yeah, Bruce was, a, you know, was around this or whatever and vouched for me. Yeah. And I would think the biggest thing is when other people who are coaches or sources vouch for somebody as a reporter, uh, that's, in, that's a huge asset. And so, you know, when I first would go to the coaches convention, I would go to like have a list of people I'm going to try to meet. And then after like three years, I realized, you know what, I'm just going to go hang out with the guys I know and I'll meet their friends. Mm-hmm. And because then all of a sudden it's like, everybody's, you know, a little more relaxed about it. And that's a long, long answer to explain how I approach it. No, it's good though. Cause I mean, I immediately, I think I'm a good read or judge of people. And I immediately, when Eddie Grant said, this is a good guy, that's a big signal. But then like, I, I got to meet you. And I was like, you just put me at ease. And I was like, Cool. You didn't ask me for anything. You just wanted to talk. And then like, I think, you know, you reached out later and anyways, I've always, that's always been something that's stuck out of my mind and it's a really good skill to have in any line of businesses. People got to trust you. And I don't think of, I can't think of any other information is your business in a sense. And, um, you've always been a trustworthy person. Something else that you know, the art of what you do is you tell stories 
and uh, you tell really good ones. You know, you, you've written some great books, and when you when you write articles, you're telling a story. Well, I want to talk about that a little bit. Like, how did you learn to tell great stories? So I didn't go to like I have friends who I work with at ESPN, and we're still at ESPN. Some aren't, and different people who like I really got started when I was probably 26. You know, like I didn't know what I wanted to do when I went to college. At one point, I was an art major because I could draw reasonably well, and I didn't know. I just didn't know what I want. I, I was always loved sports, but it wasn't like I went to school to write or to report. And there are people who you know, take courses and classes and really study and learn. And that wasn't me. I was somebody who was just kind of found my way to it at a later stage. And, you know, I think it was, I'm just very curious, right? Mm -hmm. I was just very curious about certain things. I'm not curious about like, like I'm the last person you'd want to take like you know, tax or business advice from, I don't understand <laughs> it. I don't care to know it. Like there's a lot of stuff. I'm not very tech savvy. Mm -hmm. Um, but there are certain things I'm really curious about. And, um, so, and I like, you know, and I have the benefit that I truly love like the game of football. Like I love it even more now than 20 years ago when I got into it. Mm. Uh, I don't get, I don't get, um, bored by any aspect of it, you know, like I, like, I'm just really fascinated by it. And now it's to the point where like, you know, my wife has grew up a cowboy fan in, in Dallas, Texas, but like, she knows who most of the coordinators and position coaches are. Like she probably knows more about who the people in the, in the football world are than a lot of people who are in press boxes, just because, you know, that's kind of part of my world. And it's not like she like, you know, is, is hanging out with, with, uh, the coaches themselves. Like we know a handful of them that we've met, yeah. you know, together, but it's, that's kind of my world. So I don't need to know, I don't need to like a lot of writers that cover college basketball too. I don't cover that a lot of, you know, a lot of like. You're like football. It. That's it. Yeah. And so now I've done stories that are not related to football before and other sports, but just like, that's my lane. That's what mm -hmm. I care about. And it's, it's, um, you know, something where I, I feel like I've always been somebody who like, I want, I need to, I feel like the best stories I can do are the access stories where I can take the reader somewhere where they cannot be taken. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I have been very fortunate that I've developed relationships with people who can let me, you know, because of that trust factor, like Mike Leach. Um, like Mike Leach and then look like Mike Leach lets his guard down. Like his guard is kind of down all the time. Yeah. I mean, know? he's a, he, he's a funny character. Yeah. I don't know if, if like my relationship with Leach, I'm not, you know, it's different than like Leach has a huge unique relationship with everybody different. Like he, he could, he could meet five people and he will find something unique to to be curious about with them. And it'll all be different. Hmm. You know, he meets you, Eric, and he's going to spend an hour talking about what your dad did for a living. And <laughs> that skill art of being able to read people and just um, illusion and that, you know, like, and granted, that's a more of a fascinating thing. Like, but what I would describe with Leach is he is very good at looking at the back of somebody's baseball card and finding one factoid that he will just go all in on, mm. um, you know, and, and Leach was different than most of the coaches in that regard. But, you know, like, I just feel like one thing that I've been fortunate with is I feel like I've been able to connect with different kinds of coaches, mm -hmm. right? Like we have, I'm going to help out my old TV crew week one. It's an LSU UCLA game. I have the, both staffs. I probably talk to more than any other staffs, the UCLA staff. I've known Chip Kelly for a long time. He's a very, he's a certain way. Ed Ogeron's an LSU coach. He's a complete opposite guy of Mike Leach. The only thing those two guys have in common other than football coaches is they don't golf. <laughs> that, in that regard, that makes them a little bit unique in, in their own way, but they are complete opposite personalities. 
Mike Leach cannot get off the phone. Ed Ogeron, you can get him on the phone. You just can't keep him on for more than, you know, usually three minutes because he's got to go, mm-hmm. you know, and moving on and going a hundred miles an hour. But so th- all those things, like I'm curious at all aspects of it, you know, and um, I guess it just comes back to the curiosity. It's a curiosity and how can I tell a story? It's not necessarily, um, you know, like in 20 years ago, I was doing freelance, not freelance. I was doing uh, more uh, stories that would be more open-ended and they maybe they may have had a darker component to them, mm. you know, and these stories now that I'm more drawn to, I don't think they're that way. I just, that's kind of where I'm at in my life, you mm. know, and I don't like, I don't begrudge anybody for the, for how they approach the job that they're doing as writers. This is just what I'm curious about, you know, like the same person who, when I was, uh, I don't know, 15 years old or whatever it is when you're in ninth grade, who went to football camp at Marist college and probably didn't pay enough attention to the stuff I could have learned from is now the one who soaks up everything I can soak up um, on the detail work, mm-hmm. but when I was, you know, and it's probably not that uncommon where it's like, I wish I knew then what I know now, or I wish I, you know, like whatever, I don't, you know, it's not like if I had, if I had been way more intellectually curious and focused in ninth grade that I would have been, you know, Tony Gonzalez is a tight end, <laughs> you know? So, but, um, but at least now I know what, you know, I kind of know what I don't know. And, you know, it's kind of, maybe that, maybe that's why I'm so curious is because some of the other things I was kind of like, just letting it fly by me too fast. So you've been around some really cool court, uh, some, sorry, really cool coaches. You've been around a lot of great coaches. Are there any commonalities that you see amongst them? That's like, there's just like this kind of this thread, like they have different personalities. But is there something, something or a few things that you see that like, man, like that, that like Ed Orgeron's like won a national championship, struggled, done a lot of interesting things, but man, there's something here that also maybe Bob Stoops had, or maybe that chip, you know what I'm saying? Like you've been around some great folks. I think the one thing, Eric, now that, you know, we're, you kind of cast it that way is I think they have a tremendous amount of self-confidence, hmm. you know, like, um, I'll give Leach this, I, I, you know, like I worked with him on that book and, you know, Mike is very, you know, it was like, let's say the other football coaches aren't well educated because they all have degrees of, you know, some measure, but like, you know, he went to law school and he like, he's very studious. Right. And just, um, but he enjoys that. He does. And one thing I remember we talked about in the book was ego and ego is a kind of a taboo word for a lot of people, right? And Leach, and I, I mean, it's been a long time since I, we worked on the book, but one of the things he talked about was like, ego is, there's a problem and I can be the one to fix it. And you have to have the confidence when you're leading 150 people or 100 people to put yourself out there. And I think of, you know, I think of Ed Ogeron as like, he is obsessed with recruiting. It feeds into all sorts of things inside him, the chase, the, you know, the energy, the, all these things. But the biggest thing for him is he has a complete confidence that I know what I'm looking for. I know what I see. And he learned under Jimmy Johnson. He learned under Pete Carroll and he learned from all sorts of other people around him. But I, I don't care that somebody else thinks he's a two star or somebody else thinks that guy's a five star. No, it's what I think that that really matters. And to be able to act on that without hesitation or with little hesitation, um, I think, you know, that pays off because it pays off where if you're a, a recruit and you're hearing all sorts of recruiting pitches from, you know, other people and you're 17 years old and this is the first time you've ever been through something like this, um, it can be reassuring and trust, uh, trust building and, you know, like to have, like, to be, to lead people, if you're wishy-washy on it and not projecting a complete command, mm-hmm. yeah, then you're, you're digging out of a hole. I think that's the biggest thing. Like, 
you know, I, I forgot what we, you know, maybe it was the fact you mentioned Justin Moore or whatever, but I was just thinking like Kevin Sumlin in 2011, 2012, even from the time I really first kind of connected with him when he was mm-hmm. at Houston, um, he's one of the most charismatic people I've ever seen in coaching. And he projected a lot of strength when like I was fortunate to be with them. They had beaten Nick Saban in Alabama, Johnny football's freshman, retro freshman year. He wins the Heisman. The next year, that's the game of the century. I'm with them in College Station that week. And I remember that meeting the, the, the I don't know, three hours before kickoff. Mm-hmm. Everybody was you know, like, and that guy was glowing. He was so like in the room. And, and you know, different, the, the, if you were asking me what is the best things you've ever experienced in the job, I would say it's to 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 be in the room when some of those pregame speeches or when some of those speeches are mm. being delivered. Um, and what are some of your most memorable ones? You know, I remember, I remember the the feeling and the energy in that team room. You know, there were some recruits like Kyle Allen, who was a five star quarterback recruit from Arizona. I think he was already committed to to A and M. He was one of, I think Miles Garrett might have been in the room. Like those guys were not AM players. They were eventually going to be AM players. But so I remember they were in the back of the room. I remember being in the back of the room and just listening. You know, I don't know if you overlap with Terry Price, um, the D line coach. It was just like, you know, I don't know. Heard if about he, him. Yeah. I don't know if you, you know, you were, you were a player at the same time as when he was around the program, or whatever. I remember some of the different position coaches stood up. You know, they each had to stand up and speak, but just the energy in that room was insane. Right. Um, like I remember really clear being in New Orleans the night before LSU was going to play Clemson. I remember Ogeron's speech to the team it was the last team meeting and it was an amazing speech he gave. Like I can still hear his cadence and his delivery um, on it where it just still like what is going on i'm getting goosebumps from it because (laughs) it's like literally i can feel it going from just thinking about it right um tv doesn't do that justice it can't right um no i remember some of these like halftime against clemson in 2012 we were losing and jimbo has a way with words i mean he's good and he's at halftime. He's like, you know, we're down. I think it was 12 or 14 points or something like that. And they were coming on strong. And he's like, guys, you know, we're just standing in our own way. And he rallied the troops and he was like, I just remember coming out of the halftime and I did. And, and the guys, and it was like, everybody f- forgot about the scoreboard because they trusted in what he was saying and what was going to happen. And it happened. And that was kind of the tipping point. I actually remember, you'll appreciate this. I asked him one time, we were in his office, because you remember, I don't know if you knew, I was his director of football operations and director of sports science. I don't think I knew that you were the DFO. No, I don't uh, think I knew Yeah. So I was, I was after my, I started as a speed coach and then he asked me to be the DFO. And, uh, and so I was doing so much on the road organizationally when Andy Urbanic retired and he was like, Eric should be the guy. And I'm like, I've never been a DFO before. And uh, I was like, Jimbo, if you want me to do it, that's, I will do whatever you say. But can you name me director of sports science? That job didn't exist yet. And he was like, yeah, you, you, know, you never you name yourself whatever you want. I don't care. You know, he didn't know, you know, what I wanted to do. But anyways, um, uh, I asked him in his office once. I was like, because we were kind of on the verge, but we hadn't quite done. I was like, how do you get a team to believe that they can win? the big ones, you know, before they do it, he goes, you just got to do it. <laughs> it was just kind of like, you can't believe you can do it until you've done that hard thing. And that was like the tipping point when we came back and beat Clemson and everything was just downhill from there. You know what I'm saying? Um, but I know what you're talking about. Sorry. I just wanted to interject there for just a second. Cause those are special moments. And when a coach knows how to connect with a team it's like they 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 got to feel you and know that you got their back. Conversely, you know, what are some of the common threads for coaches that have been, you know, that you've seen that have failed? Uh, I think one thing is a little bit of paranoia hmm. or 
it's a paranoia where you're trying to anticipate bad things are going on. And I don't know if that comes from a, you know, that Murphy's law, you know, anything that can go wrong, will go wrong, where it's almost like somewhere from that, I feel like it is the flip side of the confidence part. You are projecting something, you know, negative, you know, um, and I don't know if this is a common, common thread, what I'm about to say. I just remember when, when Brian Kelly first got the job at Notre Dame, uh, I was there for ESPN magazine to do a story on him. And he told me a story about how dirty the locker room was when he showed up and Charlie Weiss was the guy he followed and about <sighs> dirty locker room. I feel like kind of tied into a couple of things. It, and this is, this is not his words on this part of it. This mm -hmm. is more me taking some other things from different things I've heard of, but I think it, it, it hits at disorganization. It hits at a lack of accountability and it hits at, um, like honestly a lack of caring, hmm. right? Like, there's a famous, famous clip of Ed Reed in the NFL talking about, uh, about cut tape. You've been in the log, you know, this cut like, Oh yeah. Uh, they, they use these things to cut off the tape yeah. on your ankles and guys would just leave it out. Right. Yeah. And he was talking about like, we got volunteer firemen coming in here, having to clean it up, clean it up. You know, it's like, they should be ashamed of this. And it's like, you know, you think that stuff does matter. It's when people know it matters. Like just, I worked on this book with, with Ogeron two years ago or a year ago, um, flip the script. And part of what really popped, he had a team the second year, his first full year as the head coach at LSU. And they were, they were up and down, they were struggling and they had a former player come back who, uh, Duke Riley. I don't know if he's still in the NFL. He was with the Falcons, a linebacker, but He'd been out of the out of LSU for like a year, and then they had a bye week. He came and Duke, do you want to speak to the team? Uh, yeah, but give me like a day. I want to hang out and observe. And one of the things that Duke Riley lit into his former teammates and the rest of the team about was, I watch how you don't clean your trays. I see you don't. Uh, you parked in a handicap spot. I see, and he rattled off like six things that like. And I, I thought it was interesting because it just, that kind of stuff, you know, as I'm sure you've heard this a million times in different places you are, but like the little things are the big things, mm -hmm. you know? And so going all the way back to the, to the Brian Kelly observation of Charlie Rice's locker room, not being clean. And look, maybe that, I, I don't know what. You sure. Know, there could have been a lot of weird things happen. There could have been a lot of weird things that are going yeah. on. Yeah. Um, but I think it is when you have things get, get a lack of accountability and things just get really sloppy. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's something that something that has carryover. So you think coaches get paranoid about things that could happen? Cause that was, you know, we we're talking about paranoia. So you're saying like, you know, coaches get paranoid. Like this is the downfall. Like they just start making stuff up in their head. Like I think they spend more time worrying about stuff that, and again, some, some years their, their, their locker rooms, you know, locker room changes every year because yeah. of the main team, like some years they, they can, they can probably manage it better. But I think that's one of the things that happens. Like Butch Jones did a really good job at his first couple of places. And then I think he did a nice job when he got rolling at Tennessee, where he took over, not a good situation from Derek Dooley. But then at the end, when I think his coaching staff had turned over and, you know, maybe had some good assistants who had moved on and maybe some of the hires he made weren't great. Um, I think Butch Jones, you know, would, you would, he would see himself as a big culture guy. Like one of these guys who, yeah. um, like the basketball coach now at your alma mater, Buzz Williams, where they read a ton of stuff. And I think they're immersed in, in that. And that can be great. But also when there are things where you're, spinning a lot of plates in the air. Um, sometimes some of the plates are going to start falling. And when they start falling, I think some of the players start questioning things, you know, like I don't know precisely like 
I thought like Butch Jones did a lot of good things, but in the end at Tennessee, it all just started to implode. And then when it went bad, it all started to crash to the floor. And I think some of that, like, to me is how, like, good coaches don't forget how to coach. People don't get dumber. You know, they, there's, there's different reasons why things start to fall apart. We're going to take a break for just a moment to talk about how you can get exclusive content designed for high performers just like you. If you're looking for information and resources to improve your health, well-being, and performance, then sign up for my free high-performance newsletter, Adaptation. Just go to www.ericcorum.com and sign up now. This newsletter is my effort to bring zero-cost, high-performance resources and tools to anyone with a desire to improve. But now back to the show. And some of them are out of their control. Most of them are out of their control. But I, I think that's the part that is very nuanced. And we as media people, I don't think we really have a, always a great sense for it on what the postmortem is. You know, we spend a lot of time thinking about what that play call was or whatever, or why did they do this or why did they do but. We don't really know why they called a timeout there. You know, I the great experience, you know, being around a staff where I was not writing about them, you know, for a story that, that right after the game and hearing the next day on Sunday morning. Well, the reason why this happened is because the quarterback was so um, overwhelmed and so wound up that he couldn't really settle down to get the play called. They had to burn a timeout rather than take another delay a game. And it's like the coach can't necessarily say that at his press conference because then he's throwing the, the right. back under the bus. Um, but at the same time, it's like, why did you do that? Well, this is actually the reason why we did it, but I can't say that. You know, it's like there's a lot of stuff that um, that I think contributes to all those things. Have you ever I, – I did some research when I was in the NFL – I'll, let me just say this. I was given, I was privy to some research. How about that? Um, on who like the most successful coaches, in the NFL and what the commonalities were from an external standpoint. And something we found was, is that they had been fired before. It wasn't their first job. It was their That's second, so all of them go down the list. It's amazing. It's the second job. And something that, that I started noticing early on, and this is just an opinion, but I think it's pretty true, <laughs> is that there is no true professionalization of coaching in the early ranks. So if you want to be a coach, it's like you don't go learn. It's like if you want to be a business, you can go through the school of hard knocks, right? You can go to business school and get taught like best practices, right? And coaching, it's like you go be a GA. You learn what that person told you and then you go try to copy it, right? And so what happens is, is these coaches get thrown into positions they're really not even prepared for. And what they do is, how many times have you seen it where the coach goes in? I've, I've seen it a dozen times where they go interview for their coaching job and they give the packet, right? Mm -hmm. And what is the packet? It's Nick Saban's packet. And they scratch out Alabama and they put the name of their team on there. So what they're doing is, is when you copy a model, you copy the errors. What is Nick Saban always doing? Oh, he's constantly reevaluating though. Like changing. Well, well here's, it's interesting. Cause I mentioned that. I think this might've been the same trip where we had, I don't remember the place in Lexington where we had dinner. So I went like, Alabama was before Tennessee on the trip for me. And I remembered I sitting in the cafeteria in the basement of, of the Tennessee football offices complex. Butch asked me a little bit about my trip to, to Tuscaloosa. And he said he drew, and this is obviously before, you know, I think he spent four years on Nick Saban's staff or three years before he got to our Arkansas state head job. he, I was talking to him. I spent an hour with Nick Saban. One of the things was like kind of change and staff turnover and managing it. And so what Butch did, and I should know this because I don't know the Greek alphabet well. Uh, I think it's a, is it the omega that looks kind of like a U where it's 
Um, yes. It's so like this. Yeah. The yeah. Alpha so he, and the Omega. Yeah. I think, took, I think he took that letter and he goes, here's the thing. He, he drew it on a piece of paper and then he drew a line right down the center of it. And he said, basically, this is how it works there. They, it's basically like whatever comes with winning is comp- the, the, uh, the temptation of complacency mm-hmm. or that's whatever. When you constantly bring in new people and purging old ones from successful, a lot of that, a lot of it, if you're bringing the right people or if you're strong enough in your culture and your, your, your tenets of what you are and your identity, which obviously, you know, he is that guy. Um, you're able to regenerate it in a different way because you're constantly bringing a new energy. Mm. And I thought that was kind of interesting because he's really the only one who's been able to sustain it like that in college. You Saban? Know, like, yeah. Like Florida State, you were, you, you know, I think this predates you, but like Bobby Bowden did a remarkable job there. At one point, I remember talking to guys who used to work there and they said one of the things was once they he lost kind of the balance of some of those assistants mm-hmm. you know chuck amato may not have had a great head coaching run at nc state but he served a very valuable role mark rick served a very valuable role i forgot you know you can rattle off like four or five other guys who were in that you know 95 to 2002 run or whatever and then when they got their when they left the balance was off mm-hmm. and um, I think that's a, you know, that's a challenge in terms of, in terms of managing college athletics. Well, what I was trying to say is, is that like, I think these coaches like Butch, not Butch, um, Brian Kelly started it, was it division two? Yeah. He was at like Grand Valley State. Grand Valley State. Yeah. And yeah like his weird fact, his first uh, all American athlete was actually my cousin. Huh. He was a really good field hockey and, uh, softball player how about that this was back in new england yeah so i mean that's crazy i mean but these like he he was able to like learn who he was create a value system a culture and then go okay and had time to do it where i feel sorry for some of these coaches now it's like they haven't because it's so 24 7 they don't get to think about like they go from position coach to coordinator and now they're responsible for a tactical thing when you go from that to head coach now it's like oh my gosh i gotta create a culture and i gotta learn how to get our guys to create behaviors off of that culture like so little of it now is tactical it's like creating and curating the culture that you want and now that with the money and everything that they get very the life cycle so short but if you look at nfl as a, a way to learn a lot of like Pete Carroll, he didn't have, he didn't even know what he wanted to do until he had that time where he was out of a job. He's like, this is what I stand for. And he wrote it all out. Right. And if you look at over and over and over again, you know, the NFL, you can get a second chance because it's such an elite fraternity. You know what I'm saying? There, you know, there's ways to get back in it, but in college, it's like you hit the ground running. It's immediately, there's no time. Like you would better have it figured out and have a good idea and then be ready to iterate off of that. And if you're well, always, go ahead. Well, you th- think about the tactical piece. Like this is as it relates to getting a college head coaching job. So we're going to talk about um, our friend, Eddie Grant. Yeah. Eddie was, a, was known as a great recruiter. He had been a special teams coordinator and running backs coach, and he'd been at big schools. Um, he desperately wanted to be a head coach. And I would argue, and you know Eddie better than me because you've yeah. worked building with him for a long time, but I would argue that Eddie needed to be a terrific offensive coordinator. That is a tactical thing yep. to really become. To it, it wasn't the only way he could get. That was his best chance was mm-hmm. to get a head coaching job, was to be Mike Leach, not like style-wise, but necessarily to be an incredibly proficient coordinator to get the job. The truth is, if he was going to be a head coach and I've had this conversation with a, uh, somebody, I think the world of as a person who I think has a chance to be a head coach, but this person's not, this person's a position coach, not a coordinator mm-hmm. and has made the point to me. If I want to be a head coach, if I'm the coordinator, something has gone wrong. I'm not going to be the, like this person wants to run the program and 
like make the decisions. It's not about necessarily what calls he's going to put in in the red zone um, <laughs> and the game planning of an offensive game plan. So Eddie, Eddie Grant, again, I think that probably in certain set of circumstances, maybe he could have gotten, you know, an FIU an FAU because mm-hmm. of his ties down there without being, um, you know, seen as like having a top five offense or a top 10 offense. But that would have been the, the, the long point I'm trying to make on this is for somebody to get a head coaching job, you you basically have to impress somebody in one capacity that might not really be the most critical thing in determining whether you're actually a good college football head coach. Mm. You're exactly right. And that's where the flaw is in the system is um, if you look at business or any other domain, there's ways to vet people. And I think you, you know how it works. <laughs> you know how this stuff works. And that that rarely translates to being a great head football coach. Um, and there's plenty of, you know, if we were just to do a study on it, there's plenty of cases where people weren't exceptional coordinators, but fantastic head coaches. John Harbaugh uh, was a court was a special teams coordinator. One of the longest tenure guys in the NFL right now. And people love to play for the guy. Um, but the skill set required for that job is different than is required to be a coordinator. You have to have a global mindset. Um, but that's, um, I don't know how we got to this, but, uh, it's such a, it's, it's such an interesting, curious thing for me to look at. But, um, one of the things, you know, I sent you before we, we always ask on this show, it's a, it's a, it's a podcast about high performance and you've been around elite performers, players, coaches, I mean, to me, in my mind, you are an elite performer uh, because you you're the top of your game and you've been consistently producing for all these years. What does high performance mean to you? Um, you know, and how I am judged, I don't think it's really, you know, as a as a performance coach where you're like, okay, this guy topped out at twenty three point six miles, you know, or like. <laughs> Sports is so scoreboard driven, Mm -hmm. where to write or to report about it really isn't that way. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, you. you, I can say I work at the Athletic. I did this story. It drew seven hundred nineteen subscribers. You know, new subscribers. Yeah, there's a tangible element to that. Um, I don't think in context of, um, like you know, I've made it or I've, you know, some kind of like benchmark as to where I am with my career. Mm-hmm. Like I know this, like if you had said to me, if you had said to me in eighth grade or junior year of high school or senior year of college, this is what you will get to do. This will be your life. I would say, which finger do I have to cut off? <laughs> I would, yeah, you know, and it's, you know, like it, it, to me, it comes back to what do I, what do I value? Um, what does it take to do the job? How do you stay engaged and curious? And then do you have the, the situation around you, whether is it like, you know, is it your family supportive of it? How do they handle it? Um, you know, do the people around you, do they value what you do? Are they support you and how you do it? I think those are the things that are like most um, critical for that. And so for the high performance part, for me, I don't really think about it in that context. Like I'm always thinking about the, I would imagine the one commonality you would have, I would might have with coaching is it's on to the next thing. Hmm. You know, like I definitely value what I did last week, but like there's always something else you're going to be going towards. Right. And so, and what's, what's, um, tricky about living, you know, through a pandemic with it is, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of thrown out of your comfort zone, right? Because so much of what we do is schedule driven, you know, it's like at this time of year, we're doing this and this, you know, whatever. And that is, that is, that is, disturbed because you just don't know 
you know, is it really going to happen like this? And, you know, two months from now, or people are, there's just a lot of stuff, you know, it's mm-hmm. just, um, you know, one thing that I get frustrated with is like, I'm on the West coast. And when I wake up in the morning and I get up early before the rest of the house, or at least before everybody, but maybe my daughter, I am on the phone and I'm looking and scrolling to see what happened. Mm-hmm. And it can be mentally exhausting when you're, you know, just kind of inundated with either bad news or depressing stuff or things that like do not reflect great on like the human condition. Mm. And so I think as you kind of manage what you can manage and still kind of stay, you know, stay engaged and stay focused. I mean, to me, those are things that, that do relate to like high performance because there's a lot of challenges that can easily knock you off your game or have you maybe not second guessing um how something is but there's definitely stuff where i was like eh, i i see the i see the cause and effect of you know going down that path mm-hmm. and i'm not sure it's one that i think is worth me jumping down or whatever you know that kind of thing i really appreciate the humility in that answer um what are some things that you have put in place habits, practices in your own life so that you can keep you, I don't know if you want to call it performing, but continuing to do great work. Uh, when I would, I used to walk to the gym, this is back when it was like normal times, but I would, you know, it's a 15, 20 minute walk to the gym and I would always call somebody. And the point of it, and this maybe circles all the way back to the trust factor was I was just checking in with people because Mm -hmm. If you're somebody that I need to verify something with, or, you know, something happens in your program, I don't want to feel like, I don't want that person to feel like the only time that I'm reaching out to them is when I need something, you know? So I'm trying to be mindful of that. I feel like, um, those things are things that I am cognizant of, you know? And so those are the things that I kind of put in place about, like, I don't work great, like organizationally in terms of somebody will say, and I know, you know, this is, you know, even on our podcast talking about this now where it's like, Hey, can we do this at such and such time? And I'm like, I hope so. It's just like (laughs) so much of what I do work wise. It's like, you know, I work for Fox sports and they'll say, Hey, tomorrow, can you do this? And I was like, I think so. And then I got to look at my schedule and I've like agreed to something else, which, you know, if it's like a radio interview, I'm like, sorry, it's like the radio is not, you know, that's not my job. It's like, yeah. they're pay- you know, Fox is paying me to, to do this. It's like certain things, you know, or take, prior, you know, precedent or, you know, you just, you know, we all got to manage stuff. And so I, I do not, like my wife is way more organized with like a week from Thursday, we're going to do this. I'm like, okay, I don't remember that. But you know, like if I have something, I'd be like, Hey, can you just text me before um, the the morning of just so I remember that it is just because you feel like you get pulled in a bunch of different directions. And it's not like, like, I feel like I have a jackhammer in my hand or it's something that's like real, real work, but it's just like, yeah, if I, if you ask me to go do this and now I have like four of these other things to do um, and I still have other stuff, it's like, I got to just stay on track and try to remember those things. And those are always hard for me, especially mm-hmm. like they got harder, you know, once you have kids. You know, oh so. my gosh. Half your brain goes. Yeah. Last question. Is there anything that you're personally investing in right now for your growth, reading about trying to get better at? Yes, this is a good question. And this is not, a, I'm not going to give you probably the, the, an answer that maybe you would expect, but so when the pandemic hit, it happened when our kids, had, I don't know if they were, they had just turned six, they were about to turn six, but what, we have twins, but what it really did was, I remember I've heard this from the time when I would walk, you know, them in the double stroller when they were one or two years old. And you would always hear people say, um, it goes by fast. Mm. You're gonna, you know, even God, who did I talk? Oh, I talked to an AD on the phone yesterday and we were talking about kids. And he was like, Yeah, I have a junior in college and a senior in high school. And he said, I long for because I was talking about how like 
ooh, all-star baseball practice was four days a week and it was a scramble. We were like, you know, didn't know if we were coming or going. He was like, you know, I really miss those days and thought about it. And so um, what I took from, what I've taken from all those conversations, not the one yesterday, because it already had, you know, but like from the past was now that the pandemic's here, we're going to have a lot of additional opportunity to have family time. And I'm going to cherish every moment that we get in this because I know it's going to go by really fast. And while you're in the middle of it, and I think that part of it to, you know, be present or whatever, like something could happen. And where you get frustrated by something somebody in your family did. And it's like, you know, how do you preach? It's hard to preach accountability to a seven-year-old, right? <laughs> it's really hard, right? And are you, are you really, does this, does your leg really bother you? You just want to get out of this, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing, right? And so you're frustrated, you're a, you're a little annoyed. And it's like, am I going to go to bed annoyed at a, something somebody did and think, I, I once phrased this to somebody where it's like, you know, I'm going to be hopefully 96 years old one day or whatever. And I'm going to think, I wish I had more time. And I don't want to look back and go, man, I wasted a day or I, you know, I, five hours I stewed and I wanted, um, this person to know I was upset at them or disappointed at them. And so I just kind of like bit my lip or whatever it was to try to get some kind of effect that it was going to help me going forward. And it was that really the, the, um, the best way to do it. Was that really, you know, cause ultimately I don't know what the right answer on that is. I just know we don't have that much time and those negative feelings that eat you up where you're, you know, like, and I'm not saying you should never, you know, hold people accountable. I'm not saying you should never not get, you know, whatever, but I, I think, and I am this person in terms of like, I'm not into big astrology, but I'm a Libra and I believe in like a sense of right and wrong. And I have a rigid sense of right and wrong. And I am a, you know, I hate probably not great to admit it, but like, I feel like if somebody did me wrong or whatever, like I hold grudges or I don't forget stuff, you know, Mm. it's just like, is that a person I can count on? Is that a person, you know, whatever. And you go down this slippery slope of things. And so, you know, that's the thing I am trying to constantly work on is like to remember the big picture in this Mm. because like I, you know, when I was 28 and when I was 32, all I was essentially was a reporter and a writer. I didn't have a wife and I didn't have kids. I mean, I had a family, but it wasn't, you know, I was living, you know, basically operating on my own. And so, um, you know, it's just, those are the, those sets of values and, and different things that come with it. You know, like if you're competing and you're competing as a reporter for scoops or whatever, it's like, you know, sometimes I'm competing with people who don't have kids or maybe their kids are out of the house or maybe they're not even married. Maybe they have more time to be, um, to be invested in things that honestly, I may not have time to be invested in that. And that's okay. Mm. You know, that's more than okay. I mean, I'm going to try to, you know, appreciate what you can have. And, um, you know, I did this long story with Chris Peterson, the old Washington and Boise state coach, and he had remarkable perspective because he thought a lot about a lot of things and he got me thinking a lot about a lot of things. And he, it wasn't just that I hadn't never thought of them. It just was like the fact that somebody who I cover and somebody to some degree I admire and what they do, cause they were so good at what they do, um, was emotionally, um, battling and engaged in these same sorts of issues of balance gave me more of a green light to, to, uh, to examine it be okay with it. That is an amazing answer. Um, I have three boys, nine, five, and one. And now that I'm home with them, my, my five-year-old just went to kindergarten and yesterday or Monday was the first time I was actually able to walk, take him to his uh, child to the first day of school, walk him into his classroom, you know, hug him and then leave. And then I looked at my wife. I was like, you know, when the pandemic hit, like I've gotten more time with him 
And now my one-year-old, you know, my nine-year-old, I missed a lot. I missed a lot about, you know, a lot of his, have him growing up. And, you know, that is something that I've been trying to work on too, is like cherishing those moments. I'm at home. I'm upstairs. I'm trying to work. Sometimes I get interrupted and like, are you going to get upset about that? Or are you going to take that? Like, like, man, that's really great. My son just walked in and asked me some crazy off the wall question and I'm going to get that. And I would never have had that if I was working. You know what I'm saying? And I think Which that's a, it, it's a beautiful like a blessing, a blessing and a curse a little bit because you, being a high performance coach. And I have no idea if you're nine and five-year-old have, have like, shown that they're really interested in sports or what they're in. The five-year-old definitely has. Yeah. So that's going to be fascinating because you, you know, you've not just been around it. You've, you know, that's was your, was your livelihood. Right. And Mm -hmm. so you have this expertise and yet at the same time, it's like, how do you, how do you, um, use that? Do you use it as an enticement? Does it become a detriment? Do you overload him? Do you like... I'm on the complete opposite spectrum. I'm just like, if he wants to do it and he shows the interest and there's a desire to do it and he asks, then we will. Uh, Because I've seen, you've seen it, I've seen it. Parents burn their kids out and then they, you know, they resent them for it. What happens if he shows a desire for it? And oh, then, he already has. <laughs> right. So how much, how much, how much food do you put on his plate at that point? Right. I don't I even mean, think about that. Uh, I'll give you a tip. Well, I'm not saying the food part. I'm yeah, saying like yeah. how much you put on his plate. Minimal then, like, effective dose. So think about it this way, Bruce. If you go to the doctor and the doctor, you got a headache and the doctor's like, Hey Bruce, just take one aspirin and you'll be okay. Would you then go take the entire bottle? No, no, of course not. In training, minimal effective dose. What's the smallest amount of work that you can do to get a positive result? So with a kid, it doesn't take much. Make it playful. And if he wants to do something, then we'll do it just enough. And then that's it. Um, outside, you know, outside of the sport itself. But if more coaches would implement that, you would see str- like long-term results would be phenomenal. But instead, we're like, oh, one aspirin's good, 20 aspirin's going to be even better. What do you do if the kid is like obsessed with watching Usain Bolt videos? Oh, my son loves to watch baseball and football. He, uh, what was the great receiver for Alabama last year? Oh, uh, Devontae Smith. He thinks he's Devontae Smith at five years old. Um, and now it's baseball season, so he's been watching baseball all summer and plays all day long. And we just let him play. You know, and then if he's like, if let's just take Usain Bolt, go out and sprint, have a ball. Here's the here's the interesting part for this. So yeah. we're at, he's at seven on my on my side of this, and he was one of his probably one of the two best players on his baseball team, and then he gets picked the All Star team, where he's not one of the best players. He's on the opposite side of that. And so after we get through All Stars, you know, like late in the process, you can tell like he's like, yeah, I don't think I want to play fall baseball. What? That's fine. Um, and I heard him telling, um, like, explain this, like they've been doing karate for three years now, this karate instructor. Awesome. Saying, well, I don't, uh, I don't want to, um, do X and I don't like catching. And they, you know, he had to, he had to be one of the three catchers they had in all stars. He hated it. He didn't like it. And I said, well, the reason why they made you catch or how you catch was because some of the other kids on his team, like they would play catch when they get home with their dads and, and really be into it. He never asked me to go play catch and I wasn't going to force him to, to do it. Hmm. So he was not very good defensive player. So they had him catching and, um, I, you know, so it's like, it's a weird thing where like, if you practiced at it, you wouldn't have had to be the catcher because mm. they you, know, you could run. And, but if you could actually consistently catch the ball, then you don't have to be the catcher, but because we didn't practice it. So are you saying now, like, should I have inserted myself there? No, like, I mean, baseball is like one of those where it's like, you know, if he doesn't want to, if he's not really that into it where he doesn't want to practice it, mm-hmm. the fact that he ended up having to catch like, all right. That, you know, that kind of worked itself out. It's not, you know, maybe he'll want to play baseball in the spring. Maybe he won't, mm-hmm. but it was just like, he got turned off by catching 
because that's what they had him doing. And that kind of soured him on baseball. And the reason why he had to catch was because he didn't practice enough relative to the other, you know, seven year olds or whatnot who mm-hmm. play. So it's kind of an interesting, you know, kind of a dynamic on that front. Kids are, uh, it's a little micro experiment you run every day. And, uh, I mean, in a positive way, you know what I'm saying? Like, how can I be better? How can I push them a little bit? How can I better be a better parent, better father? But, um, Bruce, this is your podcast. (laughs) Dude, you're fine, man. You're totally fine. Um, this has been a fantastic conversation, man. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you are super busy, especially in training camp. Um, there's a lot of stories to tell right now. And, you know, I'm just, I just want to tell you how much gratitude I have for you doing this. And it's been a blast. Um, and I hope we keep the lines of communication open so that I can still keep, if you need, if you need anything answered or have any questions about your kids, I'm, I'm right here to help. You're going to be a resource a lot longer than you you want to be. Hey everybody. I have one ask from you today. I've been studying the growth playbooks are the best podcast. And the number one thing you can do to grow your show is to get more reviews. It takes less than 60 seconds and it's critical for podcasters like me. It would mean the world to me if you would head to the Apple podcast app and leave a review on my show. My goal is to get to 150 reviews in the next two months. And I know that we can do this with your help. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes and all of our other Hot Pie Media originals baked fresh daily at our home online at hotpiemedia.com, the Hot Pie Media YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to podcasts.